Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Merry Christmas! Well, as we start a brand new Advent Christmas series, I wouldn't be much of a pastor if I didn't start with a math equation. Right? Am I right? You know, I know I'm speaking to some people that are accountants and engineers, and some people are mathematicians. I come from the land of the arts and literature, so I need every trick in the book when it comes to math. And I learned something a number of years ago, and listen, if you, if you struggle like I do, this might be helpful. Did you know percentages can be reversed? This is brand new news to me. I didn't realize that. Like, like if you did a, a little equation, if we did 32% of 25, that's a hard equation for me to do. 32% of 25. But if I reverse the numbers and I do 25% of 32, I know that a fourth of 32 is 8. Eight's also the answer of 32% of 25, right? It's pretty neat, eh? Like, like, like let's try another one. I, yeah, listen, you came to church today. You didn't know you were going to a math lesson. But listen, this is the bonus teaching. Look, 4% of 75. That is a, an equation I can't do in my head. But if I reverse the numbers, I know 75% of four is three, three. And it's the same answer. Sometimes when you switch things around, you can more simply build an equation and come with an answer. And that's what we're doing in this Advent series. We're going to switch some things around so that you can better calculate the meaning and impact of Christmas from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the New Testament to the Old Testament. Let, let's do a little bit more math, but let's not make it math, math. Let's talk about our lives. You know, when we think of the world and everything that is, when you think of a timeline for all of creation, we don't know when this world's going to end. We don't know the exact date it started. What we do know is what year is it? Pastor Jessica, we're, we got to work on this. <laughs> it's 2022. Now, let's just say it's here. That somehow, maybe Jesus is coming back later here. We're not sure when. But it's 2022. We do know that. Most of us, when it comes to the Christmas story, we try to find the implications for our lives and the personal significance of it by going back to an event that happened about 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born. And we know Jesus was born sometime between four and 6 BC. How do you know that, Pastor Jonathan? The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us when Jesus is born, right? But we do know from the events in the Christmas story and the narrative, we can calculate it. Historians have done this. We know for a fact that Herod the Great died in the spring of 4 BC. And Herod is a big part of the Christmas narrative. We also know that Jesus started his earthly ministry when he was 30 years of age. And there's some interesting things when you go into Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it tells you who was in power at that time. And if you do the calculations, you'll find that Jesus was born somewhere between 4 and 6 BC. 
So for many of us, we try to find the personal significance of Christmas by going back to a manger and a Christmas story. But what if I was to tell you that Christmas, actually the idea of Christmas started a long time before 4 and 6 BC. A long time before it. That there's great significance and meaning in what God has done, not just for you as an individual, not just for a faith community, but this is a story for the whole world. This is a story for the whole world. So we're going to be doing two things. We're going to be anchoring this series around two couples. One is Joseph and Mary. Now, this is my artwork. I would like you to be impressed. (laughs) Joseph and Mary. 4 to 6 BC, they're part of the couple, part of the narrative we're going to follow throughout our Advent series. And there's another couple we're going to follow, and they're probably around here. This is Adam. No, this is not Adam. This is Abraham and Sarah. They, they're about 1,700 or almost 2,000 years separate these two couples, but one story unites them. One story connects them. And you're going to see that throughout, it's the same story that connects you and I to this Christmas story, and to the beginning of even creation. There's a story that connects them. Now, it's interesting. These two couples, they're, they're not mere images of each other, but there are uncanny similarities between them. Sarah has a son named Isaac, and it's a miracle. Why is it a miracle? Because Sarah is 90 years old. Miracle? Miracle. Mary has a son probably at the age of 15 years old. And it is a miraculous conception. It is a miracle. Both of these unexpected miracles are embedded in the larger story and has a larger purpose. For Abraham and Sarah, they have a son named Isaac. And the purpose behind this story was to fulfill the promise that God had given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, God said these words. He said, I'll make you a great nation and bless you. I'll make you famous. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. You know, it's interesting. The Bible talks a lot about blessing others. Uh, Let me just talk to those maybe online or in the the room who are followers of Jesus. Because the challenge is the bar is a little higher for you. Because the Bible would say this, that our predisposition, our disposition should be to bless others. Not just the blessable, even the unblessable. Now, you can only do that when you acknowledge and know that you have been deeply and richly blessed. You can only bless when you can acknowledge that you've already received, right? Here's the problem with the human condition. Don't we see our problems more than our blessings? We do. We see our problems more than our blessings. I like what author Roy T. Bennett said. He said, count your blessings, not your problems. Count your own blessings, not someone else's. Remember, jealousy is when you count somebody else's blessings instead of your own. (laughs) Count your blessings. Name them one by one, right? Abraham and Sarah were blessed with a son, But the larger story and the miracle that is happening here is they were blessed with the Son so they could be a light to the nations and point to the love of God. Now, Joseph and Mary, they have a gift of a son named Jesus. If you know the Christmas narrative, you know Joseph is not down with this announcement at the beginning because he's not the dad. And he's engaged to Mary. And this is very controversial and this is very difficult. So an angel actually comes to Joseph and prophesies this and says this. 
She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. There's a larger story and purpose. It's not just a miracle of a son that will be a great teacher. No, he's a savior. He's a rescuer. Now, why would every human in human history need rescuing? From what? What is so vile and evil and horrendous and and horrific that humanity needs to be rescued? That's part of the larger story that connects these two couples. But in order to understand this story, we need to go back even further to the very beginning. In the opening chapters of Genesis, God creates the earth. This is the earth. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah. You know, there's all kinds of planets. You know, there you go. Looks like, oh, now I could do a smiley face now with eyes. I don't know. He creates the earth in the first two chapters of Genesis. And in it, there's a new couple. There's Adam and there's Eve. And here's the fact for all of us in this room. We're connected to them. We're connected to them, and they're connected to Abraham and Sarah, to Mary and Joseph, and they're connected to us. It's one story that connects us all. One story that connects us all in this narrative. And in the story, it goes like this. The first humans find themselves in the presence of a true king. A king of incredible splendor and glory. A king who is wise and compassionate. A king who is powerful and just. And a king that is noble and beauty to the degree that it's almost like the the sun shining full on them. But we lost our true king. We lost our true king when our first ancestors chose to be their own king. Like you and I, they wanted their autonomy. They wanted to be their own savior. And when Adam and Eve listened to the serpent, we lost the true king. Then a prophecy comes. As they're leaving the garden, as they're headed out, as they're leaving the shadow of the presence of the ultimate king in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there's a prophecy that God gives. And it goes like this. The prophecy is simply this. Someone will come. Someone will come. And it says this. It's interesting. From the woman. The Savior would come from a woman. I I love how God works. He's teaching us stuff in that. He says this, Someone will come and will deal with this great serpent, with this great dragon of evil and suffering in the world, and he will be terribly wounded. He will terribly suffer, but he will triumph. Friends, the pages of the Bible are filled with the echo of the whisper that the king is on the move again. That the true king will be the soon coming king. And when he comes, he will stamp out all that is evil and broken. Every bad thing will be undone when Jesus returns again. And that echo is in you and I. Every human in human history and every part of the globe has it in their trace memory. The memory of Eden is baked into all of us. And this is where theologians do a great job of helping us understand even the fables and the legends and the folklores from all cultures around the world have that same sort of narrative that good would triumph over evil in the end. Where does that come from? It's in our fantasy fiction, and it's certainly in the Old Testament. In fact, in 690 BC, probably around here, 
There's a prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesies about this true king. He says this in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9. He said, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. Why do you need a light? And what is the deep darkness that we're all in? This week, I, I got an email. It came into my inbox. It was a Google alert. And the Google alert said this. This is what I read. First thing in the morning. said, Jonathan Smith has died. That's not funny. It is with deep sorrow we announced the passing of Jonathan Smith on November 17th, 2022. It was a little jarring to see my name attached to a death notice that early in the morning. This was a gentleman who was 80 years old. He's from the U.S., I guess, somewhere. It just had picked it up somewhere. Google had. But you know, I thought when I read that, I thought, that will be me someday. That will be written about me. Should God tarry? I don't know when. I don't know how. But here's something I do know because of Christmas. I do know who will be there. The true king. Because he promised me. He said, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. See, here's the great darkness that we live under, you and I. If you are 80 years of age, you've lived approximately 4,000 weeks. Actually, it's 4,160 weeks, but who counts? You know, I met a couple from our church. I hadn't seen them in a long time through the pandemic. They came back a couple of weeks ago, and they came up to me, and they said, we're in our 90s now. I thought, wow, you're close to 5,000 weeks. That's bonus time. That's bonus time. I'm already about 25, 2,600 weeks I've used of my life. I think I could speak for many of us who tip over 40 and tip over 50. It goes quickly, friends. And it's when you become aware of your mortality and the weeks begin to pile up that darkness begins to creep in. And most of our strategy of dealing with this great dark, deep darkness is denial. We live in denial. We want to look younger than we actually are. You know, if I had hair, it'd probably be a lot of white in it right now, and this is why I shave my head to look young. It's not because I don't have hair. Yes, it is. <laughs> we, we live in denial all the time. Denial that someday we will have a day. We live in denial, and it's almost like every time we get sick, we're shocked. We're shocked somehow when the aches start to come when we don't move like we used to, when we don't recover from a workout like we used to, and we're shocked that somehow age is marching on and weeks are piling up. I've got to admit, though, I've always been a little melancholy. I know this because in my teenage years, and I've shared this with you before, I read fairly extensively the French existentialist Albert Camus. And if you read Camus, you know there's a little bit of a darkness about Camus. There's a little fatalistic aspect to his writings. He wrote an essay called The, the, the Myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus, I always mispronounce his name. I, I won't give you the whole uh, arc of the essay, but one guy really did a great job of summarizing what that essay was about. It was about you having your best day. When, you're, when you have a day off and you have your best day, what do you like to do? Like for me, if I can start with a coffee with my wife Shelly in the morning, we usually catch up and get on the same page. Love that. If I get a run-in through a park, listen to the music that I love. Maybe we'll find a little cafe and having a good espresso, a good one, a good espresso. And maybe we'll read a book, binge a little Netflix. It's a great day. And Camus is saying, 
that what the darkness is, it's like somebody breaks into your house that day, holds a gun to your head and says, I'm going to kill you today. There is no possibility of you not being killed by me. None. No possibility. But I'm a merciful murderer. I'm going to let you have two hours to do everything you love. Go run through the park. Listen to that music you love. Read that book. Have that conversation with your wife. I'm going to give you two hours to do what you really love in this life, and then it's over. What would you say? I'd probably say, I don't think the espresso is going to taste very good that day. I don't really think I'll enjoy the run through the park. I think even my conversation with my wife won't feel like a deep connection. It'll feel like lament and mourning. Why? Because my eminent death, the knowing my eminent death, casts a shadow that the ordinary things that make my life meaningful and joyful seem meaningless in the face of death. You see, when it comes to death, friends, death is a darkness, and we all live under it, and it makes our pursuits and our loves in life seem very meaningless. But there is a whisper booming inside of us, and the whisper is this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, the light has dawned. Who is this great light? Verse 6, he says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For unto us a child, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac is born, and he is to be a light to the nations, pointing to the love of God. But the children of God failed to do that. They thought the light was for them. For unto Mary is given a son, and he would do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's Emmanuel, God with us. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, it started a new story for human creation, a story that God never intended for us. I love the actual dialogue between God and Adam and Eve in the story in Genesis 3 and 4. God comes looking for them after they've sinned. They've decided, we're going to be our own kings. God goes looking for them, and he says, where are you? I always love this exchange. He's God. He knows where they are, and he knows whether they've been naughty or nice. He knows what they've done. So why is he asking, where are you? He's asking basically, Adam, Eve, why are you hiding? Why are you hiding? Now, what would have been the right answer to give? Adam, why are you hiding? Because I've sinned. What is the answer he does give? He says this, I'm hiding because I'm ashamed, because I was naked. And God asks another question. He says this, all right then, why are you ashamed? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat? A leading question. What would have been the right answer? Yes. Yes, I did, Jesus. Yes, I did, God. But what's the answer the man gives? The woman maybe do it. And what's the answer that Eve gave? The serpent made me do it. You know what I love here in this opening chapter, in this little dialogue? What is God doing? 
He's counseling them. Minutes into the breaking of creation, we see the wonderful counselor counseling his creation. I know I'm speaking to some people who are psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, counselors. I've been in counseling and therapy. It's been so helpful for my life. Have you ever noticed that, listen, if you're a counselor or therapist or psychologist or psychiatrist or any of the above, when somebody comes to you and they're messed up and they're in denial and they won't own their junk, do you lecture them? Put your finger out. You're so dysfunctional. You're so dysfunctional. Sit down and I got to tell you how. No, of course you don't. A good counselor, therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist will start by asking you questions so that you can come to the conclusion that you can own your own junk. How many have ever been uh, uh, lectured into a better and more whole place? All the parents in the room thought it worked, right? (laughs) This is beautiful. This is how God comes to you. He could have come with judgment and fire in that moment and he would have been justified. They did what they were not supposed to do, but he doesn't. He comes as a loving, wonderful counselor, like a great shepherd, and he's tenderly trying to wake them up and redeem them, not judge them. Friends, you received an Advent journal on the way in. Would you just take that out for a moment? And at the end, I know Pastor Jessica will give you some instructions. But the actual first reading for Advent starts today in that journal. This is a journal for our entire community. Online, you'll notice in the chat room, there's a link, you can get a digital copy of it. We want to journey as a community together towards the Messiah and what he's done for all of us. And the first reading starts today as we explore the story of how Jesus came into the world to undo what the serpent did. See, one of the things that I love is that Jesus' mission, when he was born in 4 to 6 BC, was to restore paradise. And he's in the process of drawing all humanity to himself, reclaiming what sin has taken captive and broken. You see, Jesus came into the world to undo the work of the serpent. I love, uh, there's a pastor in New York City. He says it so well. He says this, the serpent put, the serpent put a lie in your heart through a tree. And Jesus Christ is going to take the lie out of your heart through a tree. You see, God comes to Adam in Eden and he says, don't eat from the tree or you'll die. And he did. God comes to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, a different garden altogether. And he says, obey me about the tree and I will crush you. And he did. I will crush you. It's the only way to end all the hiding. It's the only way to end all the shame. It's the only way that all the punishment of all humans from human history, all of human history, were heaped upon his shoulders in that moment so that you and I could be redeemed and restored through what Jesus has done for each of us. That tree that represented death for Jesus became a tree of life for you and me. You know, the gospel, and that's the gospel. This is the gift of Christmas, friends. This is the gift of the gospel that God extends to every human being around the world. Sin is putting, God, uh, putting myself in God's place as the ruler of my life. Salvation is God putting himself in our place and taking the punishment for our sins and our brokenness upon himself. 
Here's the thing for me, maybe for you. I don't think we trust God's love nearly enough. It's hard to believe you're loved when you have struggled to love yourself. It's hard to believe you're loved when others maybe have rejected you. And we think somehow that God's love towards us is somehow based on your performance. You know, it's exhausting. It's like telling someone deeply mired in anxiety, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Does that work? And you can confess over and over, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. And it won't change a thing. You need a revelation of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And all of his glory and splendor stretched across that Roman cross, dying in your place. How deeply does God love you? To the grave and back again. Oh, friends, he loves you deeply. He cares for you deeply. And this is the story of, Christ, of Christmas. You know, you're Torontonians. You work really hard. We all work to look good. We're all working on our resumes. We're all trying to get into the right schools, get in the right networks, get the right jobs. And all of those things are fig leaves. You can clothe yourself in them and you'll always feel like, I don't measure up. But when you clothe yourself in the love of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, all of a sudden, you can know not just the significance of an event that happened 2,000 years ago. You can understand that there's this great story of love that God has for all human beings, even the ones you don't love. All human beings. And his heart weeps for every one of them. And he loves every one of them. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of his redemptive plan now to see every human being restored back to relationship with God. It says in the Bible that he desires that no one would perish, that all would have life, eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let me pray with you. Father, we come to you. And on this first Sunday of Advent in this Christmas season, God, I pray that our hearts would flood with the love of Jesus. That our hearts would flood with the truth of what Jesus has done for each of us. So Father, on the first Sunday of Advent, we say thank you for the gift of Jesus. For you sent your only son into the world because you loved it so much. And you didn't send him here to condemn us but you sent him here so that we could see you and that we could have life and life to the full. So God, we ask you in this space, and this is for you who are followers of Jesus in this moment. Maybe this is a good prayer for you. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Help the light and light of Christmas, the life and light of Christmas to flood my life this Christmas season my workplace, my school, my home, my alone time. Flood it with your presence, Jesus. God, may the meaning of Christmas just come alive like for the first time again. And if you're in this room, I'd love to, or watching online, if you'd like to know what it means to follow Jesus, I'm going to say a simple prayer. If you say that prayer, you can, you can know what it means to have the rescuer come into your life, redeem and restore you, and connect you back to God.
Maybe the prayer could go simply like this. Jesus, I humbly offer my life just as it is. And God, I ask you to exchange my righteous deeds, which are few, and exchange it for Jesus' righteous deeds, which are many. Would you give me his record and would you take my record? Forgive me of the things I've done that have harmed other people, the things I've done that have hurt your creation and image in my life or put a barrier between you and me. God, I ask you to forgive me. Fill me with your spirit. Let me in on the story that connects all of humanity, the great love story with you. I welcome you into my life as you welcome me into yours. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.